Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day and welcome to The Call, 10 Stocks, picked by you two experts. One hour, it is Tuesday, the 13th of December. I'm Andrew Gagan. Good to have you with us and our two experts on the show here, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and Adam Dawes from Shore and Partners for the first of our big cat Aussie specials. We're going to do it again uh, next week too. So just focusing on the biggies here listed on the local index. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to you. Thank and um, Dawsey, I was just um, taking note yeah. when you walked into the office, knowing you're looking very casual. Yep. So you're obviously in holiday mode already. Starting to get there. Yeah, I'm interested to know over this period, yep. what you do sort of personally as an investor. Do you just sort of go away and, and leave everything or do you have to keep an eye on it? I think, yes. Well, I think no, just because we also, clearly this week we've got risk events in terms of Huge. you know CPI and Fed and the like, yeah. but, uh, and then it's going to quieten down. But yeah. So how do you... How do you, uh, what's your strategy over Christmas? Well, we'll pretty much go all the way up until Christmas Eve, December 24th. Market's still open. Mm. Uh, so we'll be keeping an eye on things all the way through. That that December to New Year period, I don't watch the market. Nothing really happens. Lots of public holidays, those kinds of things. And then really in the first week of Jan, not much happens either. So I then start to tune back in around the 6th, maybe the 10th. And then sort of yeah, keep an eye on things. I still will be on a bit of a holiday with the family, but uh, my phone's always ringing and there's always something to do. So it's great that I can work remotely, but pretty much I'll keep one eye on the market all the way through. And then Australia Day, everybody starts to come back, institutions start coming back. And that's when we start to really sort of hit it for 2023. So, but I do keep an eye on the market is yeah, the answer all right. to your question. You're on call then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Scott, um, how, how do you look at that period over Christmas New Year then in terms of your strategy? Uh, Scott, I think you might be on mute. We can't hear you. Well, I was on mute. How about that? There My you go. Boys, and how that happened? There yeah. you go. My- <laughs> This is nothing I'll never catch on. Mate, uh, so look, I, same as Dorsey, I do exactly the same thing. Keep half an eye on the market because not much tends to happen, but if it does, you need to be, you know, to have an eye on it. Every few Christmases, an investment banker uh, finds an M&A deal to do on, on Christmas <laughs> Eve or Boxing Day or something. So you kind of got to, you got to just be contactable, be around, or at least have people who are doing it. Maybe if it's not me personally, to be someone in the team. Uh, so you want to have, you want to have, you know, just, just half an eye on the market. And then, as he says, Jan 26 is kind of when things kick off again in some sort of earnest. No one wants to be working. No one wants to be putting out releases unless they have to and there's something actually to say. So um, they, you, you can't afford to kind of switch the whole thing off if you have to have a view on, on what's going on. That being said, because I'm a long-term investor anyway, the other thing is worth keeping an eye on, just, just in case there's any meaningful price movements. Every so often you get a... Yeah, because there's not much activity, because there's not much um, volume going through the market, very occasionally you will get some kind of larger moves. Was it two years ago, guys? I think 
we had a r- amazing rally. Maybe it was 2019. An amazing rally between Boxing Day and New Year's Day, or, yeah. or maybe a couple of days after that. So they do happen. It's worth kind of just being aware of or having some, yeah, I said half an eye, half an ear on the market just in case those things happen. Even <clears> then, did I do anything during those periods? No, it was just nice the fact the market went yeah. up. Um, but yeah, if, if you are going to have a position or you do want to take an opportunity, if you get some big falls over the Christmas New Year period, maybe there's some buying opportunities, but broadly speaking, you don't expect much to happen. Yeah, talking of meaningful price movements, good chance we're going to get that in the next couple of days, obviously with that CPI read and then the, uh, the Fed uh, the, the day following. Yeah, I think so. Particularly when you think about, look, here's the thing, it's always about expectations, right? We all know that. Uh, most of viewers probably know that. But for those who don't, it's not so much what the number is, it's, it's how different the number is to what the market was expecting, either the bond market or the equities market or both. And so it's not, you know, the, the, the number itself won't be a big deal if, if it's roughly what the market's expecting. But as you say, if you do get a gap between those things, it really can change expectations. We saw a great rally during November, even early uh, very early December. And then the last week, the ASX was down 1.7% down yesterday as well, up today, which is nice. But there is, you know, m- most of that should already be priced in. The expectations have been changed. Whether that holds, I guess we'll find out when CPI comes out. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, I was looking at that note from Goldman Sachs overnight too, where they say basically <laughs> capitulation baps still mm. to come, mm. but this is still a, a bear market rally. Yeah, I think next year we're going to see that inflation number. It's going to come down, but there's going to be a level where it's not going to be able to go through that and it's going to be very, very tough and potentially going to stay quite sticky and stay higher for longer, which I think will unnerve markets as they can't see that that trend continuing to go lower. But yeah, CPI uh, and and the Fed talk, uh, obviously 50 basis points, that's what the market's looking for or that's what they're thinking but they could always throw a curveball somewhere mm. along the line mm. um, just to make our Christmas yeah. <laughs> yeah. a little bit better. <laughs> if you're on your toes. Yeah, 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 you're not having that all day after all. No, yeah. so, sorry, Scott, you've got to go back in. <laughs> sorry. All right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, let's, uh, let's get into it. As I mentioned, this is a Big Cat special. So the first half hour, we're going to look at BHP, NAB, Santos, Telstra and South32. And in keeping with the theme, our stock of the day is CSL. Um, C-suite changes there. Paul McKenzie has been appointed as the new chief executive and managing director. Uh, He'll succeed Paul Perot, who is retiring after 10 years. In fact, he's been with the company 25 years. And uh, McKenzie has been CSL's uh, chief operating officer and will move into the top (laughs) job in March next year. So, Adam, Mm. how important is, I mean, such a large company. Yeah. Um, Paul Perot obviously had his stamp on that. Yep. Um, he's you, you look at his performance; it's been outstanding, fantastic. Hasn't it? Yeah. So, how significant is this change? So significant, yes. But the way they're doing it is absolutely right. When we have directors that just basically put an announcement out saying "I'm over this," they throw everything up in the air and they walk out the door. That's when you got to worry. This is a an orderly. Um, uh, unraveling of the yeah, it's a, it's an orderly side of things, and I think that's really really important. One for the market to feel comfortable about the replacement, but two that it's not there's no infighting or there's no there's no issues going forward. So I, I think yeah, he's done an amazing job. Ten years in the chair, he's he's grown th- billions of dollars worth of capital inside of that share price. The only thing that I would say about that share price here at the moment, because you're going to ask me if it's a buy hold or sell is that it has struggled to get through that $300 mark a couple of times. And we're here again. It did try and get through that $300 level. 
it's failed again. It's a psychological barrier, isn't it? It's a big one, yeah. and it's taking its time to sort of try and you know push it through. And it has been there at 308, 310, you know that kind of thing. But that $300 level has been a big level. So for me, it's going to be a hold because I think overall that the business is fantastic, management are fantastic, everything, but price action, I'll be putting my bids in around 285 because that's exactly where it's sort of 300, 305, and down at 285, 280, somewhere around there, you can pick this up because it is in a sideways pattern at the moment. All right. So, Scott, um, yeah, you're liking what you hear from the company in terms of that transition? Yeah, I think Adam's, Adam's nailed it. You, you want to make sure, look, particularly with these expensive, big businesses, everyone wants to believe and you want to see evidence that everything is kind of being done in an orderly way. You don't want to scare the horses, so that's exactly what you want to see. Um, I, I can't add much more to what Adam's already said. I think the challenge with CSL, here's the thing about CSL. It's a bit the same as the banks, honestly. We'll talk about a couple of banks a bit later. But the the way we think about some of these businesses is we take this historical lens, this 10, 20, 30, 40 year lens and say, CSL has done X, therefore Y. And that's not necessarily the wrong approach to take. But we saw from that chart before, the shares have gone almost exactly nowhere, up and down a little bit since 2019. In other words, if you bought shares in 2019, you may be able a little bit of dividends, but um, you know it's gone. It's gone nowhere. By the time we hit, mm. uh, you know, maybe two weeks time, we kind of I think my wide numbers tenth or so of January 2019. I think it was. Yeah. Um, you know, if we get there roughly at the same price, that's four years of nothing, no return. Now, given the, given the last four years we've been through, that might not be the worst thing in the world. But it's also kind of worth thinking about the CSL that we think we're buying, the business that, um, you know, has it done extraordinarily well over an extraordinary amount of time? Yes, absolutely. Very, very clearly. This has been a great business, as, as Adam said, generated billions of dollars of wealth for shareholders. But has much happened since? And so you've kind of got these two questions of have they done exactly the right thing with the with, with the executive changes? Yes, clearly done, you know, communicated it nicely. They've got a plan in place. It's going to happen in an orderly fashion. Those things are great. Is it worth buying these shares? I think that's the key question you want to ask. Mm. And so you've got to look at the both the, the history and the market expectation. Those two are different things. So share price gone nowhere in four years. At the same time, by the way, earnings are up the best part of probably 20, 20%, give or take. Um, and so there is some element of catching up in the share price as well. I have been, I've never owned CSL. I've been wary of CSL for the longest time, even as over the last five years, it's up at 100%, it's so a double in five years. That's a, a very good result for a very large business. Um, I have avoided it simply because at 44 times earnings, give or take, even after going nowhere for four years, imagine what it was on four years ago, by the way. So it was probably 60 times earnings or 50 times earnings. And it looked too expensive then. It still looks expensive now to me. Um, it is one of those companies that is made to made you look silly. That have done a sensational job of creating sales and profit growth over a long period of time. But if you ask me, how are they going to justify another doubling in the share price, which in theory needs to come with a doubling of earnings unless the PE expands again in a market beating time frame? I don't know the answer to that. So look, I wouldn't be selling CSL, particularly if I owned it for a while, because there's probably some nice capital gains there. Um, you ought to be very careful about incurring capital gains tax unnecessarily. And frankly, you know, CSL has done a very good job over a very long period of time. But is it obvious to me how they justify a PE that must be, it's not far from triple market average, uh, and the growth has been okay, but not great, and the share price has gone nowhere, feels too rich for me. So look, I would probably hold, yep. I wouldn't buy... I'd be tempted to sell, but I'd probably hold on the shares, I think. Okay. All right. That is CSL. Let's get into the ones as picked by you. The biggest of them all, BHP. Too, I wanted to know about this. Uh, it is the iron ore major, but looking to become more diversified. In fact, it's going to make that play for, uh, 
for Oz Minerals, uh, as far as copper is concerned, to expand its portfolio. Um, so, Scott, how do you view BHP mm. at the moment? This is this. We're going to go through a few commodity businesses as we talk, and so I'm going to try and make the my, my comments different each time. But there is a common thread running through a lot of these commodity companies right now. BHP, on the face of it, trading at 8.4 times earnings for a company of this quality and size. That feels like a really good price. But if you're not familiar with resources companies, just be mindful that they do tend to trade on sometimes very expensive, very cheap PEs because of the cyclical nature of their earnings themselves. BHP, as you've already said, Andrew, um, very much an iron ore major and still going to be that for a very long time, even with those um, additional diversified investments it's trying to make. Here's the challenge. If you look at the earnings number, uh, three years ago, $4.37 a share in cash flow, $2.35 in earnings. That $2.35 is now $6 in earnings in the last 12 months. Now, that's a lovely triple. And again, the company has done well, but it's done well on the back of the commodity price largely and some operational excellence. This is a, I mean, the, you, know, you, you can't complain about BHP's quality. It's clearly a quality business. The challenge for investors is that eight times earnings, if those earnings go back to $2.30 a share, all of a sudden get closer to 22 times earnings than they do to eight times earnings. And the question for investors is, what is your outlook for the commodity price? That's generally too tough a call for me. If I'm going to play commodities at all, I do own Fortescue shares, by the way. I bought those about eight months ago, I think it was, or maybe 12 months ago. Um, you know, If you're going to play that play, you want to play it, in my mind, when the commodity price is low, when you get the opportunity of the upswing in the commodity price at hopefully a reasonable share price. And that's simply because you don't, you know, the, the range of risk return outcomes, when the iron ore price is up, when everyone's expecting a lot, the price is already in. That's why it's a low PE, by the way, because the market also knows to some degree that these prices probably won't last. Uh, I like BHP, the business. It's a high quality business, probably the the best quality iron ore major around, not a pure play, as you say, but, but probably the best quality there. By the way, it's got some pretty stiff competition from the others. Uh, so I like the business. I would be waiting and buying opportunistically when the commodity price, in this case, iron ore was low. The, sec the share price isn't exactly irrelevant, but that's almost the secondary consideration because of that cyclical nature of the business. So I like it a lot. Again, a bit like CSL, if I owned it, I probably wouldn't be selling in a hurry, um, but I wouldn't be buying it today's price. All right, call that a hold, Adam. Yes. Yes, so I'm going to go with Scott on this one as well. It's it's definitely a hold. Most BA or for BHP, it's in all of our clients' portfolios. Mm. It's just it, you well, can't it's ignore unavoidable, it. Unavoidable, isn't it? Yeah, 11 yeah, percent in the index. You just can't ignore it. So the only reason why it's on hold is that every time it sort of gets closer to that fifty dollar mark, it starts to to fall away, and we have seen that it's forty six, whatever it is today. But you look at it and it does look at every time it gets to that $50 level, it just sort of comes back as well. So on price action alone, obviously iron ore has been high. It's at 111 today, has done very, very well. Um, and their shipping uh, is continuing to move higher now. Though obviously there's a wet season and a dry season up uh, in the Pilbara. Um, we're coming into that sort of wet-ish season now. So there might be a little bit, but they're ramping up production to keep that, that iron ore moving forward. And certainly, I think BHP is my most preferred out of the large cap businesses to be there. But on price action alone, uh, I think it's a hold. Wait for that $35 mark. Yep. Uh, where if you look at the chart, it looks quite good down at that 35 level. Uh, that would be a good entry point if we do start to see the commodity prices start to come off. But certainly, um, there's a war chest there after the sale of the uh, oil and gas assets to Woodside. They've got a lot of money sitting on the sidelines there waiting for 
a, um, a good dividend that will come in the next six to 12 months. All right, that is a hold then from both on BHP. Let's get into the financials, the big banks, and uh, our pick today is NAB, the uh, second largest by market cap. And um, Adam, I guess you know the focus for the banks at the moment is that net interest margin, particularly as those interest rates move higher, is yeah. having that positive effect, isn't it? Yeah. Who said banks were boring? <laughs> hey? Who said that? Uh, it wasn't you then. No. Obviously. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I might. <laughs> you could have. Uh, NAB, look, uh, overall, I think NAB's done an absolutely fantastic job. Uh, you know, with all the uh, adverts that you see with the, the, the house is running away and the mm. car driving and then it all falls apart and you go into the car yard to get another car. Great oh, ads. You're a sucker for the marketing. Great ads, great yeah. ads. And I think that has really helped them win their business banking. And they've actually done really well taking market share off the home loan market from CBA and ANZ as well. So um, as far as is it a buy or a hold or a sell, I prefer ANZ at these levels, so I'd, I'd stick NAB as uh, a hold on valuation grounds. Again, it's this valuation side of things. It's getting harder in the top end to find real good value at the moment. There is a couple that we're gonna talk about later on, but um, I think NAB has done really well. Um, they need to keep that momentum up, which is where they sometimes struggle or, or become unstuck. Uh, but I think you know you potentially might see a little bit of weakness in NAB share price ANZ's my preferred pick, mm. uh, NAB would be a hold. Okay, all right. So, uh, um, Scott, then, of the big four, how does mm. uh, NAB sit into that, as far as you're concerned? It, it's a remarkable range of valuations, to Adam's point. Uh, 10 times earnings for ANZ, 19 times earnings for CBA. Mm. I, I, I actually, I'm not quite sure. I've got to say, you know, when we're talking about big caps here, my general thing was going to be for this, this program it's very hard to get an informational advantage in large caps. In small caps, you can do a bit of extra research, find out some things the market doesn't know. Um, not inside information, of course, just general information, but people don't know as well because the companies aren't as well understood. Generally, at the large end of the market, you say, well, everyone should know everything. The pricing should be relatively efficient. You're looking for those small opportunities where the market's just getting one wrong because of its view of the future rather than misunderstanding the business. Now, I'm not saying that's not the case with the banks, but when you're paying a PE for one bank, that's almost double that of the others in the oligopoly, the large bank oligopoly we have in Australia, I, I find it very, very hard to believe, I've got to say. Um, you, you know, I, I'm not an options trader. I don't pairs trade, but I've got to say at one level, you think you'd almost pairs trade CBA and ANZ and, and probably make some money just on the basis of such a massive, massive gap in the PE. Now, don't do it. I'm not suggesting people do it, but it's just, it's just a huge, huge difference. I don't know what, even if ANZ is a better bank, even if it's, a, sorry, CBA, even if it's a meaningfully better bank, is it worth double the price per dollar of earnings of ANZ? Mm. I don't. I really don't see how. Westpac almost as cheap. NAB in between. NAB's about 13 and a half times earnings. Um, I probably, uh, I mean, CBA is clearly the, the pick of the bunch. They've done really, really well over, over time. I have to say, if you think about the next 12 or 18 months and what's likely or possible to happen in the economy and the challenges we may well face, on one hand, you've got net interest margins probably going to continue to increase. You've then probably, though, got some challenges with businesses and households coming under increasingly financial stress. And I think from a reported earnings perspective, it may well come down to the differences to those banks between the quality of the loan books because the size of the impairments that are provided for or actually taken, if we do have tougher economic times, may well be the difference between these banks because they're going to move into lockstep otherwise. And that probably the least like the others in terms of its focus or its exposure to business banking. Now, CBA has made every post a winner on housing so far. And again, if I'm kind of a little bit contrarian, I'm thinking 
you know what, CBA is so beloved and because of the recent increase in house prices in particular and the money they've made from, from personal lending and mortgage lending in particular, um, if the household sector continues to outperform the business sector, CBA will probably continue, at least profit-wise, mm. to deliver growth. Is that likely to be the case? I don't know it will be. Um, uh, honestly, if I was going to pick one of the big four, Andrew, to your question, I think I'd probably honestly go for the cheapest one in the set. I think that's probably over time statistically a better bet. Um, but I don't mind NAB either. I don't love any of the banks at the moment, I have to say. We're at a real inflection point, and I don't know which way this is going. Sometimes it's easier just to simply say, I don't know, and sit on the sidelines. If we have meaningful NIM increases and no meaningful bad debt increases, these guys are going to be much, much more profitable in 12 months' time than they are today. If that NIM increase is limited by overseas funding costs, deposit funding costs, and the fact they can't get costs out quickly enough, and or bad debts or bad debt provisions increase, this might be a tough 12 months for the banks. I just don't know which way it's going to go. You've got to, got to have that economy crystal ball to make a call. So I don't mind NAB. I, if I own CBA, I'd probably sell it, honestly, just on price and value alone. The other three, you can probably throw a blanket over. So I'd probably say, let's hold NAB for me. Okay. All right. Sounds as though you're sort of trying to convince yourself then, but um, we can do that. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's move back into the resources space. Uh, Santos uh, Oil and Gas. Uh, it's recently instituted a policy of at least 40, 40% payout of free cash flow from operations per annum. Um, also boosting its share buyback. Um, Scott, but if you look at the share price, given what's happened to energy, has it been disappointing? Yeah, it probably has actually. Um, Santos has had its challenges with uh, you know the, the oil search deal and then with, with just debt broadly and kind of trying to find its way out into a clearer space. They've done a pretty good job within, within the opportunities they've had to kind of fix that problem. But again, I think a little bit like the commodities players, the market's got half an eye on what a future lower oil price might be. And this is the real challenge for investors. All of the bad news is probably reasonably priced in. We saw the jump in the middle of the year, as you can see there, uh, largely on the back of expectations and the reality of increasing oil prices. Uh, you know, will they stay high forever? I very much doubt it. Uh, it's never been the case thus far. You can go back to the oil shocks of the 70s and 80s and say, you know, that those things passed as well. So the market's probably right to assume that maybe even though the realised price of oil has been higher than, than average over the last 12 months or so, and we certainly know that at the pump as well if you've been filling a car up, uh, the, the likelihood is that it goes down over time rather than staying at this level or going higher. And I think the market's probably factoring that in. So again, a bit like BHP, oil search, so Santos, on a PE of 6.7 times, ordinarily, you buy a basket of industrial companies, that sort of PE, one or two will go broke, the others will probably do reasonably well, and you'll probably make money overall. But commodities is a very, very, very different space and resources in particular. The hardest thing about oil for mine is it's not just working out the, you know, iron ore, you work out the commodity, you work out the market, you work out the supply and demand stories and try and make an educated guess. Oil's even worse because you do all of that and then you say, but this cartel called OPEC controls much of the supply and therefore the price of oil. If oil was allowed to float, no pun intended, um, price-wise, it'd probably be, I don't know, probably in the teens a barrel. If, if, if literally the, the OPEC countries removed supply constraints and just said, we'll supply whatever at our marginal cost plus a bit, you'd be paying, I don't know, 15 18 20 $25 a barrel, something ridiculously low. Now, it's not going to happen, don't get me wrong, but the, the, the swing factor is the unknown of simply what OPEC decides to do supply-wise, which imp impacts the price globally and always probably will for the foreseeable future at least. So, uh, I, I don't love the oil sector, I have to say. Um, I, I, I get, I, I'm still sitting on the fence on this one. Uh, to your point of talking me into stuff, 
if I owned an oil stock, I'd probably be selling it. But, but to your point, at this sort of price, this sort of PE, it also does feel just too cheap to sell right now. So mm. I, I, I put, me, put me at the exit, waiting for an opportunity to walk through that door. I do think it's a little bit cheap to do it at the moment, though. So it's, it's nominally a sell, but it's a hold until I get a better price. Okay, fair enough. Adam? Did you get all that? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, Scott's done a fantastic job of talking about oil and the, the overall sort of mm. macro theme. I'll sort of dive a little bit deeper into Santos and sort of mm. talk about how or what the grievances I think the market has had because it has underperformed Woodside. There's no doubt about it. If you overlaid a Santos and Woodside chart mm. together, you would see Woodside absolutely mm. streaking uh, light years ahead of it. Yep. So that's one of the things that, uh, that has um, the market um, sentiment hasn't been great to Santos is that underperformance to Woodside. But one of the other things that has really sort of hurt uh, uh, Santos is there's got a couple of projects, one uh, the Barossa project and a Dorado project, which are looking to see that there is um, certainly some overruns in some of those projects, and that has impacted the price as well or kept the price lower. So overall, um, I'm, I think Santos is a buy. I like Santos. It's certainly one of the ones that I think uh, Woodside has run, and most of the market is fairly neutral, but we're really confident in Santos to doing it at $7.14. It looks pretty cheap down here. Um, potentially could go a little bit lower, but there's some really good support of that $6.80 mark. So that's probably where I'd be sticking some uh, buy orders in there if we still see some weakness. But that weakness won't come because they've just extended, as you said, the buyback from 350 million to 700 million. They've done 98% of that 350 million at the moment. So they are gonna continue into 2023, soaking up any loose stock that's in there, keeping that price nice and firm. Mm. But also remember, there has been some delays with the sale of their PNG LNG side of things. And the market again is looking a little bit skeptically at that. But if they do do that sell down, there's $1.1 billion that's going to hit the balance sheet, which is going to make the market obviously uh, rally on the back of that announcement too. So yeah, comfortable with Santos, it's a buy. Yep, good one. Okay, uh, we better get a wriggle on. We're All falling right. behind a bit time-wise, but let's get into Telstra. Kerry wanted to know about this. Uh, of course, the Telco, uh, interesting, just in the last couple of days, uh, data issue there is calling up misalignment of databases caused the details of 130,000 unlisted customers to be listed oops um Jeez. but no malicious cyber activity thus far so right. watch out um but okay looking at the company look i guess you could call it uh defensive because you know regardless households businesses still need yeah. their telcos yeah. don't they in this space Adam? and look at four dollars it doesn't look over demanding or under demanding there at four dollars Dividend, everyone used to talk about Telstra being a dividend stock. It's not a dividend stock anymore. They've pulled that dividend back. They're really looking at that growth side of things. Mobile handsets uh, and, and MBN, but, you know, four bucks. It's not shooting the lights out. Look, if you've got it, I would hold it. I prefer Aussie broadband, smaller, telco. Can nip at the heels at some of these bigger, larger incumbents and take market share. Uh, for me, Telstra is a hold. Um, it looks, looks okay here and... Um, not much else to say. Yeah, no, fair enough. Scott? 
Yeah, there isn't much else to say. I actually, by the way, share Adam's uh, preference for Aussie broadband uh, over Telstra. I should say I do own Telstra shares uh, that I've held for years and years and years. So uh, I still own those shares. I actually don't expect them to be market beating from here. Uh, to Adam's point, it's neither a dividend stock nor I think is it yet a growth stock. And the PE, the 21 odd times, suggests that it kind of needs to be more than it is. So there's a lot of hope, uh, probably just a lot of inertia in the, in the shareholder registry, quite honestly. Plenty of plenty of instos and plenty of retail shareholders that own these shares. They say, well, like, I hold them, so I hold them, so I hold them. That uh, might uh, be, be enough to get it through to that growth story, but it's, it's not quite there yet. I think if you buy Telstra at this point, you've got to believe they really can turn on some growth where they've probably spent, I don't know how many years now, trying to find that growth. My original thesis, by the way, was that growth would come through mobile, but the challenge has been they've given up a very high margin broadband and, and copper, of course, initially just that decline and then selling it off to or being forced to sell it off to the NBN. Um, mobile margins are much lower and haven't yet come through with meaningful growth. Maybe they're getting a kick from the Optus story, of course. Uh, maybe people simply say, you know what, Telstra's not so bad after all. And there is plenty of brand loyalty. So even though they're losing customers, they're making more money marginally from those customers than other brands are because they simply are taking advantage of that brand strength and incumbency. Uh, at the current price, I agree with Adam, it's neither here nor there. It's not going to uh, probably beat the market in my view, nor is it likely to lose a fortune. Um, the dividend is something, I think, even though it's not a company that we would recommend buying for income, plenty of people still own it for that purpose. And I do think it does have a role in a diversified income portfolio, by the way, but it's not the not the only income stock you want to own, nor is it maybe even top tier in terms of total uh, income generation at the moment. So, yep, a straight hold for me. Slight bias towards a sell at a higher price, given that given that already pretty high PE and the lack thus far of that growth delivery. Um, but don't dislike the company. Don't dis don't dislike the stock particularly. I don't think it's going to be a market beater though. So if that's your benchmark, and it probably should be, yep. then I wouldn't be owning the shares. All right. Okay, good one. In fact, on that basis, I would say that is a boring stop. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's head back into the resources space, um, South 32. Uh, and uh, it's the mining and, and metals uh, company having spun out of uh, BHP. Uh, interesting Macquarie uh, saying, expecting it's got some uh, tough times ahead just in terms of its share price, likely to uh, underperform in the face of... Uh, interest rates hikes and a, a reduced uh, exposure there to its earnings risk. Um, Scott, how are you looking at South 32? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I've, I've said before, and I'll, I'll maintain this, that you know, if, if you wanted a diversified resources portfolio, putting the band back together, grabbing BHP and South 32, you could do much, much, much worse. Um, generally speaking, one of the higher quality diversified resources plays out there. Also, again, I'm a broken record on this one, uh, really cheap on the reported historical financials, uh, 6.1 times earnings I've got here, which is just you know crazy cheap if, again, if those commodity prices can be sustained. I don't think anyone really believes that's likely. And again, to put that in context, uh, their earnings of the last year, 82 cents a share, was more than three times the previous year of 24 cents a share and the year before that they lost money so trying to work out an average level of earnings for south 32 is probably the hardest part if you're a long-term investor you should be looking at the average earnings through a cycle and saying what am i likely to earn over the period of time five seven years for example and then what multiple should i pay of that Again, they lost money three years ago. They made moderate amount of money for the three years before that, lost money the year before that one again. Take an average through these earnings levels, you're probably looking at something close to about 25-odd cents a share. Um, if that's the case, you're paying, what is that, 12 times earnings, something maybe 15 times earnings, something like that, which is about right historically through, if you take a through the, the cycle earnings. 
Now, if you believe they can get higher earnings sustainably, then that's your edge. Um, if they don't do that and they come back to the pack, of course, there actually is downside for the shares, even though the PE looks cheap. The old story about resources stocks is you buy at a high PE, you sell a low PE, mm. not because that makes you know it's obviously the opposite of what we would normally say, but because that tends to reflect the cyclical nature of those commodities prices. Um, again, I wouldn't be buying at today's price. I don't think it's particularly expensive, by the way, so I wouldn't be selling it either. Um, but again, when you've got such a huge amount of profit in the last financial year, you're not looking at, in all probability, a sustainable level of earnings. How will the market react to lower earnings? Well, in part, the PE goes up without the share price moving. We know that's likely to happen. That's why it's on a PE of six. Um, but would I expect there's not more potential downside for the share price? I think there probably is. So mm. uh, again, I'm not, not trying to time the purchase necessarily, but I'm looking at it saying, even on historical average earnings, it just doesn't look particularly cheap. Uh, maybe it's 15-ish times earnings through the cycle. That's that's not a great price to go and grab the shares, nor is it super expensive either. So it's a solid hold for me. Yep. Okay, Adam. Yeah, well, our analyst really loves this one. He thinks it's probably one of the best resource stocks in the market, obviously behind BHP. And I like Scott's uh, comment bringing the band back together because that uh, aluminium side of things, nickel, copper, uh, coal and manganese are their major parts and three of those four of those metals have done absolutely really really well and we think copper is going to continue to do well coal has done very well and aluminium has been sort of a, a little bit mixed and nickel has done very well also but uh, there we go There's a fantastic comparison chart there of south 32 santos and woodside mm. you can see woodside obviously uh, really killing it uh, on the upside there but look for south 32 i think overall um, really comfortable. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay with my analysts on this one, and it's a buy um, because of a lot of those future-facing commodities will do well next year, and the dividends are going to be very, very strong for South 32. All right. Okay. Good one. Well, that's uh, let's sum up where we've been for the first half of the show then, and uh, we began with um, where our stock of the day was CSL, given they've had the change at the top, and. Um, Adam uh, likes the Woodley transition. He's got a hold on it, as does uh, Scott there. Um, to uh, stocks as picked by you, uh, BHP, the, the biggest of them all, as uh, a hold from both. Uh, certainly Adam's preferred out of the large caps there. Um, NAB, uh, the second largest um, of, the, uh, of the big banks in terms of market cap, a hold from Adam, and, but he does prefer ANZ. And uh, Scott has a hold on NAB. Santos, uh, that is a uh, was a hold from uh, Scott, um, but potentially waiting to sell. And it is a uh, well, Adam notes that it's underperformed. Would so we just saw that comparative chart actually, uh, but he reckons it looks uh, it looks cheap, so he's got a, a buy on it. Telstra, a hold from both. And finally, there's South 32, a hold from Scott and a buy from Adam. All right, let's check in on our own high conviction fund, which is picked by our investment committee here. The latest episode of the committee is live for you to watch at ausbiz.com. So let's check in on the portfolio update going into December and into the new year. Bapcorp and Domino's were removed. Index and Janus and Education were added and Elders Waiting was increased. Mm. So terms of performance from the beginning of March, uh, it is up just over 7% on a cumulative return basis. I think we take that. So keep sending in your requests, keep the call switched on to see which stocks our committee 
we'll be looking at next. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. All right, what we're looking at next for the second half of the show is Aristocrat Leisure, Centre Group, Seek, Amcor, and Transurban Group. All right, so let's start with Aristocrat, the gambling hardware software provider. Uh, 27% earnings growth for their financial year. Adam. Yeah, it looks good. I mean, we were talking uh, earlier on large caps and finding value. Mm. I think we've got a lot of value in Aristocrat. The stock has certainly risen and then now started to, it has now come off and started to level out. Um, overall, I really like Aristocrat, so it's a buy from me. I think overall, they've done a fantastic job on social gaming in the US. Now, social gaming is where you actually just play a casino on your mobile phone. I don't know if you've seen people do it on the bus or anything like that, but they're there pressing money and they've got literal live money going through on these things. So um, that has that part of the portfolio has seen that grow around about 7% year on year in the three months to November. So that has significantly done very well. And this is the whole thing why I think Aristocrat originally fell away from its sort of highs. It was talking about those uh, that social gaming and, and were, they weren't getting the, the cut through that they expected that's now started to, to follow through. So I think there's real value in Aristocrat at these levels. It's a buy from me. All right, Scott. I like Adam's bull case. I am not quite as convinced as he is. Uh, given, given the price, look, I think social gaming is going to be huge. If they get it right, there's no regulatory or app store challenges to that particular platform because we know it's kind of... Is it a game? Is it gambling? Is it some sort of on-trader gambling? Arguably, it's probably the latter. Um, maybe if you take a, a more cynical view, maybe, which I'm doing. Uh, and so it's kind of one of those things where the question of how well or how long that continues to grow is an open one. If it can grow that business, and Adam's absolutely right, they've done a spectacular job thus far of getting it up and running and creating some value. If it's allowed to grow unfettered from here, I think it probably is a buy. Um, if there is a deep, meaningful pushback again from either the regulator, regulators or the app stores, which are kind of increasingly becoming the arbiters of, of taste of, of what's allowed and what's not. We've certainly seen the Twitter-Apple conversations over the last couple of weeks. Um, then we could well see a meaningful dent in that growth story. That's the bit that's probably keeping me at the current price on the sidelines. A little bit cheaper, I think Adam's clearly right. It's probably very clearly a buy. Um, but given the given the expectation that I think is in the share price of that continued growth, I'm a little bit more nervous than he is about what might happen there. So I think it's done a really, really good job, cannot fault the circumstances. It's one of those things where it's a bit binary. If they are either throttled or, or banned or excluded or something's done to, to stop that business being able to grow, then it's a pretty significant market. If there's nothing going on, then there's, there's more upside to come. So maybe it depends on your risk tolerance as an investor or what you're looking for from a stock or at what risk you're prepared to take. Uh, or maybe just even simply the view of how likely you think that regulation is. I don't necessarily have a view on it. I'm not suggesting it is likely or it's going to happen. I find when I get those sort of situations where there just simply seems to be one meaningful source of potential downside and I'm simply not sure how to weight it, I tend to step back and say, I don't know, so I'll give it a miss. It's cost me some money in the past. It's made me some money in the past. So it's probably a, it's probably an investment uh, psychology perspective rather than a, a straight view on the stock. 
I just simply can't weight those odds. I don't have a view of how I could do that. Reasonably best guesses are fine and plenty of people are happy to do that. Um, I'm probably not on Aristocrat, so I'd probably give this one a miss. Again, probably maybe 20% cheaper and I'd be buyer easily. I think there's well and truly enough uh, margin of safety in that at that slightly lower price. At the current price, I think it's a bit too rich for my blood, so it's a hold. Okay, all right. Well, it's a hold. That's better than a no, which you originally said. Okay, all right. Let's uh, move on to uh, Centre Group. Um, it is the operator of Westfield Shopping Malls. Uh, and of course, uh, Scott, a lot of this depends on uh, whether we're going to continue spending, really, as, yeah. uh, of course, the economy falters. Yeah, I don't, I don't love retail REITs, generally speaking. I think if you want to play the REIT space, there are some great bulky goods, warehousing and retailing, which I think make pretty good opportunities. What I don't love at the moment, given the risk, is that both office retail and, uh, sorry, office, office real estate and retail real estate. Office real estate, because we're not yet sure how many people go back to the office in general, let alone, as you say, with the challenges coming for the economy, what cost decisions are made by, by tenants to, to minimise leasing costs and make those things available. Um, I don't know how that plays out, but it doesn't seem like a particularly good upside opportunity to me. REITs tend not to have a huge upside operationally. A bit of leverage, bit of bit of rental growth, you can make some money there. But how likely is that in a situation where we're seeing a lot of people, Westpac famously a few months ago, maybe six months ago now, meaningfully reduced their Sydney CBD office space. I think it was by 40%, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. I, I don't think that, that theme has played out yet. So that's, that's office. Going to retail in terms of those concerns, uh, I, I actually think Centre is the best. Uh, that and probably the business was called Shopping Centres Australasia, now it's called Region. Uh, but, but I think Centre is probably the best place because if, you know, if you're going to go to a centre, i.e. Westfield branded shopping centre, you're going there because of the day out. You're going there because you want to window shop, see your friends, go to a movie. It's, it's, it's an event in itself probably uh, for most people going shopping. Whereas if you're going to go to the, the neighbourhood of the regional shopping centre, you're going to a particular store to get a particular thing. We're seeing even with those uh, return to the shops that's been well and truly documented over the last six months, nine months, the online growth is still phenomenal. And not just from the, the online pure plays. Maya's online sales up 30%. Premier Investments, I want to say more than 25% from memory. So some really strong online e-commerce stories. And I think the return to the shops narrative, probably driven by people who like the news and or have a vested interest, um, is, is not, it's not that it's not real, it's that underlying that, we're still seeing massive, massive growth in online shopping. So I'd be very fearful if I owned a mid-tier REIT. I'm not super excited about the local ones. Uh, but Centre is probably the least worst of that group. A 15 times earnings is not a bad price to pay for a, a high quality retail REIT. Um, I, I, I can't buy it other than for income. If I was looking for income, I was building an income portfolio, I would include it, but I don't think it's going to be market beating from here. So for me, unfortunately, it's a hold. Okay. Adam, I was uh, looking at this and saw you quoted, in fact, uh, talking about World Centre. <laughs> there you go. Uh, saying you feel as though it's been sort of been punished enough it's broader sector yeah um so you're actually potentially liking this then at this well, point well i'm glad you talk, told me that before i was about to oh, <laughs> so, no no I, you changed I, your mind no well i do there's, there's there's a couple of things i do like center group due to the fact that it is very diverse now if you're going to buy a retail stock um, La Visa, Uni, um, uni yeah. um, uh, Shaver Shop, I mean, the list goes on. I wouldn't be going into some of those retail stores. But if you buy Centre Group, you actually buy all of those businesses in there as well because mm. Centre Group takes care of some of those profits. 
But we can't, on the other side, we can't argue that there is going to be a consumer slowdown next year. If someone with a mortgage of a million dollars are going to have to find another $1,600 a month after tax to pay for that mortgage if they haven't fixed it, right? So there is this consumer slowdown that's going to happen. But Centre Group, and the reason why I don't mind Centre Group, is that they do have fixed leases and they do have CPI-linked leases for all of their stores. So for next year, yes, it's going to be tough for the consumer, but Centre Group will continue to get the same rent because it's fixed or even mm. CPI. So we had the COVID closures and they locked all the doors and they you know, had lawyers come through and that's the worst it's ever been. So I think this time around, yes, the consumer is going to slow down. The spending will slow down, but it won't be as bad for Centre Group because of that fixed area. Um, so overall, it's a hold from me. I think... It, Consumer, it's going to get tough for the consumer next year, and mm. and and that's going to have to flow through to Centre Group. So maybe it's not 2023 story, it's a 2024 story that is going to hit them a little bit harder as well. So for me, don't mind it. It's it's that diversification that you want. Yep. Um, but it'd be a hold at these levels for me. Okay. All right. Uh, moving on to Seek, uh, the job listings giant. Once again, this is a bit of a macro story, obviously, what's playing out at the moment. And uh, um, Adam, there's two ways of looking at this, yeah. I guess. Uh, yeah. I noticed a note from Morgan saying that they, they believe that um, it's a growth share to buy. It's got the tailwinds of elevated jobs just mm. as far as, obviously, we're seeing how the tightness in the jobs yeah. market at the moment. Also, the potential of um, Im- immigration. You know, yep. um, that, that is still subdued at this point. Yeah. However, um, if we're seeing the economy turn down, then that's going to mean job losses at the same yeah. time, isn't it? I think it's the, this year was the best seek is probably ever, ever going to have as far as those job ads and the amount of people that are looking for that new job or wages increases. So I've got a job, but I can see that there's another job doing exactly the same thing, but I'm going to get 20% more. Absolutely, I'm going to take that. So I think overall the online marketing place have, have, have done well, and especially through the reporting season. Though I think REA if we're, is, is probably a better business going forward. Seek did see some softer um, uh, numbers coming through from some of their programs, and, but it, was, it is a quality, quality, quality business. So for me- It's been a poor performer. Though, it has been it. a really bad, poor performer. Uh, it, it, for me, I, I'm a little bit biased to this one because it has done so well over the, over the period. I have sold it out with car sales. Both of those businesses, I you know, I think are mature businesses here in Australia. So we'll struggle to get the growth. I prefer REA in the space, but uh, for me, uh, at these levels, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and, and put a buy on it due to the fact the price action, if you look at the back of that chart again, mm. it looks quite good. There's a lot of support down uh, down here at those mo- this moment. And I think Seek has the ability to pull some levers to get some more revenue in the door. So yeah, it's sort of that 22 level, um, it looks pretty good. So um, I'm gonna say it's a buy. I think it's a very well-run business. Uh, REA is probably the better one if, if I was pushed to do the two, but um, I think yeah, Seek is a buy for yeah. me. Scott, do you agree? I do an Adam Stone on my thunder. I was looking forward to finally having a buy on the on the <laughs> on the program, so that's mine as well. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think it's a, a really high quality business, done extraordinarily well. Uh, it's had some ups and downs the last couple of years before this most recent year, where ordinary it almost made a loss a year ago. 
Um, and so it's gone through a tougher times. And again, if you think about what the next 12 months might bring, as we've just talked about, it's very, very possible that its earnings come under pressure in the short to medium term if the economy does take a bit of a spill, if we do see unemployment rise and simply less effort, less um, competition for workers. So it's very, very possible that we actually see seek profits fall before they rise again. But if you think about this, there are some wonderful things, Adam's already talked about realestate.com. If you own what's effectively a classifieds monopoly, um, it is a remarkable, remarkable asset to own and to do very, very, very well. Uh, plenty of people have tried and failed to take all of these guys, seek car sales, REA, uh, trying to take their position. It's, it's, it's all but impossible. It'll happen one day because these things just happen eventually. A disruptor finds a way to get, get rid of the incumbent. But is it going to be the next 10 years? I'd be very, very surprised. These guys are incredibly dominant. They do an incredibly good job. They're the only place to look for a job. They're the only place to list a job. I won't say the only place. There are others as well as, but you're not going to list, in, you're not going to list on C. You're just not going to. So um, it makes it a great place to be. Their online business is the online business model. I'm sorry, is a great asset for them. They're going to take it overseas. It hasn't done as well as they might have liked in some of those countries. But these are seed investments, and I think if you think about the people behind it, the, the business model, the brand, the opportunity to redeploy some of that cash smartly. Uh, I like this one a lot. It's not as cheap as I'd love it to be. Um, you know, you, you can always wish for a, for a lower price, but. I think if you get a quality business, paying up for that quality business, as long as it has growth potential left, and I think this one does, mm. is rarely a bad mistake uh, over a large enough portfolio. So yeah, I like Seek as well. Like Adam, I think it's a buy. Good one. All right, that is our first double buy for the day. Let's uh, get into Amcor, the international packaging company. Most recent quarterly update, a 9% increase in revenue and uh, net income up 15%. Uh, Scott, is that sustainable once again, given what's going on with the broader economy? So two bits and pieces going on. The broader economy is a great way to put it, Andrew. On one hand, packaging is going to become ever increasingly important. I've talked about e-commerce already. Uh, mate, the number of Amazon boxes I've got to get rid of uh, over, over the course of a couple of weeks at my place is slightly over the top. I own Amazon shares, but full disclosure. Um, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those things I think we're going to see continued demand for growing amounts of packaging. That's really positive for Amcor and its ilk, the rest of the category in terms of delivering, uh, literally delivering products, but uh, de you know, delivering on that particular trend. So that's a positive for Amcor. On the other hand, my biggest concern with Amcor is how differentiated or not it is from its competitors and what that means for the company's pricing power. We saw earlier in the year, um, it passed on uh, almost as much in, in red price increases as it got in cost increases. Now that's positive. It was able to pass on some of that, but that's running pretty fast just to stay still. I'm not convinced that this has a meaningful competitive advantage over the long term. I'm not necessarily convinced it can continue to pass on price increases at or above the level of its cost inflation. And that worries me from, from both of those perspectives. When I buy businesses, I want ones that have pricing power, that have a long-term sustainable competitive advantage. At 17 odd times earnings, it feels pretty expensive to me. Um, I don't do this one often, but I think I probably would sell Amcor if I didn't own it for income. If I had it for income, again, it's one of those companies I might take a slightly different view. If your aim is to beat the market, I don't think Amcor beats the market from here. It may, you may want to sort of push me up to a hold, but I think I'm going to stay with the sell. Um, it's just too expensive for a business that is not sufficiently differentiated or has a strong enough competitive advantage to, I think, be market beating from this point. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, uh, to pick up um, Adam Scott's point there, yeah. I, mean, it, 
obviously, you look at the online growth in retail at the moment. I mean, that is to an advantage for a business like Amcord. In terms of the packaging, as Scott's just outlined with his own household spending. Um, and mine as well. Don't but uh, to his point there also of <laughs> no meaningful competitive advantage. So how, how do you look at yeah, it? Yeah, I sort of disagree with that meaningful competitive advantage due to the fact that uh, a lot of money is, is put into R&D for Amcor. So just an example, um, you remember um, Mount Franklin bottles used to be quite rigid, but now you hold them and they go <coughs> really crinkly um, because they used to transport these empty plastic bottles as full. But what now what they do with Amcor's ingenuity is that they've collapsed those bottles so that they're, they're less rigid plastic. They collapse and they can carry more in a pallet. It's not as heavy. And then they get blown up as they put water in them. Mm. So R&D is a huge advantage that Amcor has. The other side of what Amcor has is, is, is that they go next to Pepsi or Frito-Lay and say, well, we can supply you because we've just built a factory right next to you. Right? And then they're just basically trucking the packaging over. So I really love Amcor. I think it's a fantastic business. At $18 where it is at the moment, I'm going to go with Scott on this one. It is a trading sell for me. I think up here looks does look a little bit, uh, it looks a little bit rich. Coming into the new year, I th still think this is going to be a defensive business. It's going to be a US dollar story. US dollars now started to come off. Amcor starting to rally. But the reason why I say it's a trading sell is I think the input costs that Amcor have for their plastics and cardboards and all of that is uh, getting more expensive and mm. hence that margin, as Scotty rightly pointed out, you can't pass that on to the customer every time and that's exactly where you want to be. But um, for me, trading sell, I really love this business. It's hands down, it goes into all my clients' portfolios. Volumes are good. Um, overall, uh, it's a defensive business with a global market leading position and a good management team. So any price weakness coming back to that 17, 16, 50, you would be buying this thing as much as you can because it's a very well-run business. Because you like that collapsible technology. Well, it's just one of the things yeah. that they're very, very good at. <laughs> they do that with mattresses too now. Uh, do they? Too. Yeah, if you're buying that. a mattress online, it all, it's rolled up. Oh, uh, yeah, the Emmas or whatever and those yeah. kinds of things, yeah. I digress. All right, let's uh, wrap it up with Transurban. And Clifton wanted to know about this. It is the toll road builder owner operator, both here and in North America. Did have that strong recovery, obviously given traffic um, in the, with the impacts of COVID. Um, also looking perhaps tolls to rise at a stronger rate because it's indexed to inflation. Adam? Well, one of the things that Transurban actually has, even in its governmental clauses that it has on the roads, is, is that it's allowed to raise its prices with CPI, mm. but it's also allowed to raise its prices outside of CPI if they want to, right? So you want to, in, in a high inflationary environment, you want to own a business that is able to raise prices to keep up with inflation. The reason why we've seen, and, and, and there is these, these drawdowns, which we saw in October, it was, it was a lot to do with their debt duration. And you don't look at this one on a PE basis because it'll just blow you out of the water because there is a lot of debt that is sitting behind this. But the duration of that debt and as interest, rate, uh, interest rates, but as bonds incre or interest rates increase, um, it, that, that cost of debt becomes a little bit more expensive and hence the market got a little bit worried about that. But the thing is, is that those debt profiles is over seven to eight to 30 years and they space it out really, really, really well. So that it's not just a huge burden on one year, it's, it's spread out over that time. So they manage that debt really, really well. So it, it's acted as a stabiliser now for the, for the stock. 
And I think overall, uh, Transurban is a fantastic business. They manage their roads well. They buy them off the government for cheap because they can't run it properly. They run it properly. They get the profitability out of it. And uh, I own Transurban in my clients' portfolios as well as myself. It's a fantastic business. I'm going to say it's a buy because I like that profile where they can raise prices. Mm. And the roads are fantastic as well. So um, overall, um, yeah, comfortable with Transurban. It's a buy. All right. Scott? I'm going to disappoint Adam and maybe we can have a conversation about it if we've got a couple of seconds. We probably don't. Uh, I don't I don't think Transurban is a buy. I think at the whole, I actually don't disagree with anything Adam said. My concern with Transurban is because I, I, make, I make the joke that it's a, it's a debt with a toll road attached rather than a toll road with debt. There's so much debt for this business. Uh, but the even though the prices can increase, and they've done spectacular deals with governments. These guys are absolute masters at solving political problems with real-world solutions. Hey, let me let me build this toll road for you. Let me build this off-ramp for you, and we will, you know, give me an extra five years at the at the back end of the of the operating uh, operating agreement. Really, really smart for them. Good for short-term politicians who are happy just to do whatever they want to get done this term. So, uh, really, really smartly run. My biggest concern is, despite that spacing of the debt, and rightly Tom points to, is over time. The cost of the debt, I think, will increase faster than the revenues can increase in dollar terms, um, in terms of the impact on the company's profits and, and cash flows. So yes, you know, even even as uh, those those revenues increase and inflation, I think the cost of the debt will increase faster than that because we know going from one percent to two percent doubles your repayments, even if your prices go from you know up one or two percent on the way through at the top end. So. I'm not convinced that the current price represents an attractive value for that. Now, Adam owns it personally. He owns it for his clients. So I'm going to say it actually also would put Adam's weighting in terms of view higher than mine because obviously he's got that much conviction. You always want to follow the conviction of someone who owns a share rather than someone who doesn't as a general rule. But I haven't been tempted to buy it for that reason. I think once interest rates stabilize and then look at the maturity profile, we'll have a better view and I may miss some opportunity on the way through. I think reassessing this one probably this time next year provides more potential return and certainly lower interest rate risk if we do see, as I expect, rates peak, maybe even fall off by this time next year or certainly stabilise by then. We'll have a better view of, I think, the long-term impact of Transurban. As that debt profile matures, they'll be rolling it over at higher rates. I think that's probably a medium-term drag on the earnings. So I'm not a sell at all. Very high-quality business, super great business. Uh, They have a fantastic operating model, but I'm not prepared to buy at the current price. Fair enough. All right. And uh, that is uh, where we leave it. Let's uh, wrap up the last five stocks. Uh, Aristocrat Leisure. Uh, Adam seeing a lot of value there. He's got a buy on it. Um, Scott saying um, yeah, potential buy, probably another 20% lower on the share price than, than he'd, uh, he'd, he'd buy, but it's a hold at the moment. Centre Group. Um, Scott saying best in sector. In fact, well, I think another way to put it was the, the, the least worst. So not obviously a fan, uh, but he's got a hold on it. Uh, Adam there, um, he's also got a hold on it. Seek, the um, that is a buy from Adam and a buy from Scott. That's right, it is our double buy for the day. So check out Seek. Uh, Amcor, a sell from Scott and uh, for Adam, a trading cell also from his point of view. And then finally there, Transurban. It's uh, a buy from Adam, um, but to Scott A. Holt calling it a, a business, but it's a, a debt with toll roads attached essentially. So that's his concern, <laughs> uh, which um, Adam also, in fairness, also mentioned there. Uh, all right, so that is the show for today. Thank you to our guest, Adam. 
Thanks for yes. joining us at Short Partners. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And Scott, also, thanks for joining us at Motley Fool. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the chat, Adam. See you, mate. All right. Any stocks you'd like us to cover, flick us an email, the call at ausbiz.com.au, or you can tweet us at ausbiz.tv. Stay with us. Small Caps is next. Thank you.